Hello again, and welcome to Knowing God with Heart and Mind. This is that weekly podcast, our virtual classroom study, presented each week by yours truly, Pastor Dan, on behalf of the people of Shiloh United Methodist Church. Today, our lesson is a life pleasing to God. We're going to talk about sanctification. Our original broadcast date is January 26th. 2018, January 26, 2018. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you have promised to be with us always. Thank you that your presence is with us right now. Today we give our hearts, our minds, our lives. Come speak your words of life into our very being. We pray that you would deepen our comprehension broaden our thinking and transform our understanding of everything we're about to study. For you are the wise counselor, and I am just the mouthpiece. You are the perfect teacher, and I am simply your voice for this hour. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Our key verse today is from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. Leviticus eleven forty-four. For I am the Lord your God. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. I am the Lord your God. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus eleven forty-four. And our key hymn today is Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. Verse 1 says, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, Joy of Heaven to Earth Come Down, Fix in Us Thy Humble Dwelling, and All Thy Faithful Mercies Crowned. Jesus, Thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love Thou art. Visit us with Thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. Verse 2 says, Breathe, O breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find the promised rest. Take away the love of sinning, Alpha and Omega be. End of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. back again with Bethany for this week's discussion. And as we talk about a life pleasing to God, Bethany, what do you think uh, that means? You know, what's it, what's it mean to live a life pleasing to God? I think that living a life pleasing to God means living a life that's following God, I guess. Like, it's going to please God if you are following his 
commands and striving to be better at it every day. Okay, so if if we have already been saved and justified, yes, then what's our motivation for living a life pleasing to God? Because we want to be better than we were the day before. Yeah, <laughs> but why? I mean, in other words. Uh, it it's like I you know the read the way I'm asking the question is is just to to sort of put it out there as as the the reason that we're not satisfied. Let me okay. Let me just back up and put it this way. So lots of people go to church because they believe that God has saved them. They believe Jesus died on the cross for them. Most of the people who sit in church pews on Sunday morning agree that they're beholden to God because God has saved them. And so they come to church to be a part of a fellowship of people who share that belief and everything. Not as many of them really seem to work at improving themselves in any particular way related to God. And I don't mean that as a slight. I just mean that vast majority of people I've met over the years in church uh, have a sort of contentment and even an ignorance about the fact that God expects more from us than to show up and, and you know, celebrate what God did for them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're all grateful for what God has done for us, but, but what if God expects more? And so the reason I ask the question is because if God expects more, is it, that God is expecting more from us because we're not entirely saved unless we do the more. Because if that's the case, we're all in big trouble because the vast majority of us have never done more. But the other reason we would do more is because God has, uh, has, has sort of instilled that value in us. You know, so, so the question of what motivates us to live a life pleasing to God if there's nothing in it for us. And by that, I just mean that that it's like one of the cardinal tenets of Christian faith is that God has done the saving. I didn't do anything to get it. I, I didn't save myself by my good deeds. I didn't save myself by living a life pleasing to God. The reason I'm saved is because God loved me. God chose to, to, to sacrifice his own son for my sake, his son takes that burden upon himself for my sake. And so through no participation from me, apart from accepting the gift, I get saved. Mm-hmm. So with that premise in mind, if we go further and say, then why should we live a life pleasing to God? It can't be at least because we are hoping to earn God's favor somehow. So uh, what came to mind when you were saying that, and I don't know if it connects or not, but I know in, like, I'm pretty sure it's in James, in the book of James. He kind of goes on, not a rant, but he kind of goes on a rant about like how deeds are okay and faith is okay, but faith without deeds, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he talks about how you like faith without deeds is not full faith. Like 
you have to do both. So yeah, like we're saved, but we do have to keep striving. Like we're told that we have to keep moving forward even after we're saved. Yeah. And I, I don't think that stops us from being saved. So I don't think we're all in trouble. Right. But I think a true disciple is, and you know, we were talking about discipleship last week and I think maybe that James reading was in there, but like, I think if you want to be a true disciple, a true follower, you have to keep going. Right. It's not going to stop you from being saved, but I think it is going to make a difference when the time comes and we're all standing in front of Jesus. I think it's going to be significant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're talking about in, in uh, James chapter 2. Yeah. James says, basically, faith without works is dead. Yeah. And so faith without works is dead. And he goes, here's basically what he says. What good is it to my brother? What is, ah, yeah, let me try that again. <laughs> what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So, so yeah, what you're saying is, is that, I mean, what I heard anyway is, is first of all, he's, he's saying that faith without works doesn't really mean much. And, right. and so I would take that to be that, you know, you claim that you've been saved by God's grace. You've, you, you claim that you've been born again and made anew through God's grace. But I don't see any indication of it. And, you know, I used to say that to people in a certain setting in a certain church once a long time ago because they would come to me week after week, certain people would, and they would say, I just don't understand, Pastor Dan. I keep inviting my friends at work to come to church, and they never come to church, and, and I keep telling them what a great preacher we've got, and da-da-da-da-da. And I finally came to the conclusion, and I didn't really enjoy telling them this, but I came to the conclusion that that maybe the reason that their friends were resistant was just because it didn't seem to change you very much, you know? Right. So you say, wow, this guy's really inspiring. He really gets into you know, gets into the Bible and we really get a lot out of it, but, but it doesn't seem to change you any, it doesn't seem to make any difference. So, so, uh, so when he, so when James says faith without works is dead, it could just as easily be said that, you know, your newfound religion, your new faith journey hasn't done anything that I can see that makes you any different. Mm -hmm. And so why should I believe that there's some power in this experience that you've had or this, this renewing grace or whatever. So, so I heard you say that pretty clearly. And I think James is saying that on one level, you know, what, what good is your, your transformation in Christ? If you don't do anything differently, if it doesn't seem to make you any better than you used to be. Um, but it seems like the other thing that, uh, that he says is, is that, that, you know, you're, when you ignore the needs of your brothers and sisters, it's just exactly who saved you because because it sort of seems like, uh, you know, 
if you were drowning and you were among thousands who were drowning, let's say, I don't know, it's, you know, it's the Titanic. All these people are floating around in the water and there's a half empty lifeboat. And, you know, you save one person, but the one you just saved says, yeah, but my brother and my sister are right over there. Come on, let's go get them. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so he's sort of saying that there doesn't seem to be much evidence if your faith doesn't produce works that you've really done anything that's changed you. But then he seems like he's also saying that if your faith doesn't produce works, um, it's, it's kind of like you're hoarding it. You're like, you're being selfish with it, you know? That's one, one thought. Uh, So a life pleasing to God, I, I, I realize I'm getting off to a rocky start here, but I guess what I was trying to get to was the the the, the motivation for having you know a living a life pleasing to God is not because it generates our salvation. That's already done. That happened before. Now that we've been saved, we choose to live in a new way. And from a spiritual point of view, this is what we would call being born again meaning that the Holy Spirit gets into you and literally begins to transform your nature. Um, I believe people have been born again, or at least they're convinced that they've been born again, but they resisted that. Um, remember back when we were doing Alpha years ago, and in the Alpha course, uh, Nikki Gumble, the, the preacher on the videos, would always say, the problem most Christians have is that they are born again and they receive the Holy Spirit, but it's just a pilot light, you know? <laughs> and and that what you the expectation is that you would turn it up, yeah. Uh, that would you would invite God to turn it up, and so to to put it another way, you know, God plants the Holy Spirit in you, but you have to actively participate in. Uh, you know, sort of taking away your bent towards the resistance. You know, it's our natural tendency to resist the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit's in there. We've got to sort of crank it up. You know, we've got to invite God to crank it up. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people resist letting the Holy Spirit have leadership in their lives because they're afraid of what that might look like. Um, well, we, we like control and as someone who likes control, I know that that is a hard thing to do sometimes because it's like, I, I think that, that it's very scary to give the Holy Spirit the reins and say, okay, you, yeah. you do your thing and I'll ride along. And, and the and truth is, that's probably the way people feel. Maybe maybe they don't articulate it the way you and I just did, but... But I think it occurred to me the other day, I was thinking about this, that, that a lot of people really want to know they're going to go to heaven when they die. And that's because we all accept the fact that death is inevitable. It's a part of life. You could live to be 130, but you're still not going to live forever uh, unless the Lord comes you know, before your natural death. So death is the reality we all have to face. Therefore... We like the comfort we have in knowing that there's something else that we can look forward to, and that we are really cool with. But we don't really like the idea of that same uh, uh, benefactor uh, 
not, you know, actually expecting us to do something with it. You know, so we want the benefits of eternal life. We don't necessarily want the responsibility of obedience and and submission to the one who gave us the eternal life. And so we just sort of ignore that part. We just we just kind of, you know, just sort of quietly resist it. Um, not not because, you know, we're twisted or sick or anything. It's just that what you just said, the reality is is that a life pleasing to God is probably going to have to involve giving up control over your life to God. And that's going to create a lot of difficulty for a lot of people. Right. So, you know, if I want to live a life pleasing to God, the first thing I have to do to please God is submit. To say, okay, God, you're in charge now. And if you ask me to, you know, go live in Botswana somewhere in a grass shack and give up all my TV and internet and all my fancy things and nice things and live like that for the rest of my life, then out of obedience to you, I will do it. Well, guess what? In the history of the church, that same dilemma became a reality in what they called the monastics or the monastic period. Um, I mean, we still have monks, but... But back, back in the early days of the church, a remarkable thing happened, especially after the church became acceptable in, si- in society. You know, so the little bit most of us know about church is that after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Christians were persecuted by Jews and Jews were still fairly in charge of, of at least those areas that they were in charge of. And so Christians were subjected to the persecution of the Jews. But then to the Romans, the Christians and the Jews were all the same thing. They were all Jews with crazy religious ideas that, that made common society difficult. So they just wanted to put these rebellious people down and, and get on with life and so their their basic method was is to suppress those who create discord. And so the next thing you know, there's a period of oppression and even persecution that's really directed pretty much across the board to Jews and Christians. So they we like to think that Christians were the only ones persecuted, but the Jews actually got it all too. And then after... Uh, after a certain point, Christians in the Roman colonies, like in Rome, for example, became especially persecuted outside of Jerusalem because they had this nasty habit of saying, I have no other God but Christ the Lord, and so I'm not going to uh, profess that Caesar is God. And yeah. so they got themselves in a special kind of trouble. Jews were getting in trouble because they just wanted to control their land. And pretty soon the Romans are just fed up with the whole thing. And then there's wholesale persecution going on and all different kinds. And then just Jerusalem is, is, uh, is destroyed and, and hundreds of thousands are die, uh, die. And, you know, it's just, it's a terrible time, but eventually Constantine gives his approval to the church. Now I'm giving a really, really rapid summary, (laughs) but at that point, all of a sudden, 
Christianity and Roman society are compatible. Yeah. And it's around that time that the church starts getting organized in some more sophisticated ways, because along with Roman approval comes a sort of Roman interpretation of how you do church. And yeah. so this is when we start getting, you know, things that we still live with to this day, this sort of highly organized religious system. And uh, it's very interesting because it was around the time that the church started getting organized and having bishops and councils where they're going to decide about, you know, what is in and what isn't in and all that, that this monastic movement starts. Because these are the ones who are going, you know, I liked Christianity better when it was a personal thing and it was about personal holiness and it wasn't about an organized religion and all that. And that's when these ascetics, these, these, these uh, Roman uh, people who had a lot uh, say, look, I can't really live a sanctified and holy life in society, so I'm going to get out of society. These guys go out in the desert and they live by themselves so that yeah. they devote themselves entirely to prayer. Now, that's a long story to get to the point, which is <laughs> holiness is relatively easy when you isolate yourself from society. Yeah. Because you can just have a wonderful relationship with God when there's no distractions. Um, so the ascetics there, or the the, uh, the the monastic movements are still popular to this day for that very reason. Mm -hmm. And I would even say that that you know I you know, you've grown up with your pastor, your father being a pastor of United Methodist Church. There's a lot of people that, that really can't say anything nice about major denominations like the United Methodist Church. And, and I get it. I really do. But in effect, they're just another kind of monastic. I mean, they're just sort of saying, well, you know, organized religion will do nothing but bring evil. And if I want to be holy and sanctified, I've got to do it my way. Yeah. And there's where I want to say, time out. I'm with you up to a point, but isn't the monastic a person who's basically saying, I want to submit to God, but on my own terms? I think that's fair. I mean, isn't yeah. it? You know, like, I want to really be in a really harmonious place personalized relationship with God and I don't want to have to deal with people. I, I don't want to have to deal with religion. Well, and I don't have anything against people who choose the monastic lifestyle because I think I couldn't do it. It would be really hard for me. But I also think that we were called to be in the world, not of the world and being in that monastic life. Yeah. Sort of, it, it takes yourself, you're taking yourself out of the world that we were called to be in because we're supposed to be leading other people. Yeah. And, and you're separating, you're isolating yourself. So, I mean, like I said, I, I have nothing against people who choose that life because I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't, but I also think that one of the reasons I couldn't do it is because I feel like I need to be in the trenches. Yeah. Well, and I don't want this to be some sort of indictment of monasticism, but what I was hoping to say, and I'm, I think you're totally with me here, is that is that that's that's how 
we're tempted to deal with the idea that we want to live a life pleasing to God. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, okay, let's go to another place instead of monasticism. And, you know, we live in Indiana. We got a lot of Mennonites and, and Amish around us. Yep. They're people who have chosen society, but a society that has limited its exposure to the distraction of the world. Yeah. Now, there's merit in that. Uh, yeah. Not to say that there isn't merit in monasticism. That's not my point. But but at least they're trying to say, okay, it's not that I don't want to deal with with anybody. I just want to deal with people who share my values. And, and so they're trying to live a sort of sanctified life through simplicity. And there's merit in that. Well, I, I guess, like, what I'm hearing, too, is that sanctification personal holiness is a different journey for everybody. You have to figure out what your journey is. So for some people, it is going to be monasticism. And for some people, it is going to be that simplicity, like the Amish and the Mennonites. And for others, it's going to look different. So, well, you could take, for example, there's not a like one size fits all modern Quakers are, you know, sort of, uh, they're usually called friends churches, but, awesome. but modern Quakers are really a, an amazing group um, because they don't do the same thing as the Amish in – I mean, they sort of spawn from the same sort of people group. So there was a time when you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between a Quaker and an Amish person outwardly. Mm-hmm. But as time progresses, Quakers move with it, but they still hold values of simple speech – simple lifestyle they they still shoot for an uncomplicated life and again i think there's a there's a real appeal to that that's a kind of personal holiness you know that that seems attainable on a certain level but i like what you said you know everybody's sanctification is a little different um sanctification is a term that is used a lot in the old testament and it's usually a word that said like i'm doing the series of sermons on Joshua. And it's really interesting because um, in this week's passage, they're getting ready to cross the Jordan and the instruction comes down the line. God wants you to sanctify yourselves so you can cross into the promised land. Now it's, it's almost as though God is giving them a specific instruction to sanctify themselves like a one-off kind of thing. It, it's just interesting, cause, and that happens a lot in the Bible. Um, yeah. You know, um, God will give them the instruction to sanctify themselves, and it it's almost like it isn't a, a sort of lifelong pursuit, which is what we will eventually talk about, but it's more of a, uh, all right, something really special is getting ready to happen, and so I want you to sanctify yourself. And I think this is probably where the mikvah, the, the little sacred bath yeah. that Jews take before they go to sacrifice at the temple and that kind of thing. I think this is where this concept comes from. Is in, And, you know, you and I have been to the Holy Land. We've seen the mikvahs, yeah. uh, the ancient ones. And, you know, basically it's one pool, but there's two sets of stairs. And mm-hmm. they take off all their dirty clothes. They go in one side of the pool, sort of waddle around in the water, wash themselves, and then they come out the other side and they're put a clean garment is put on them. 
Mm-hmm. And and no doubt in their heart and mind, they're sort of making a spiritual uh, transformation. They're intentionally kind of focusing themselves on God uh, and sort of trying to, to cleanse their soul and their mind for a time. Um, the Catholics, when I was a kid growing up in Catholic church, my parents would always say, you know, it's a holy day. You can't eat this or that, uh, or they would say, it, we're going to Mass at 10 o'clock, so get your breakfast now because you can't eat uh, an hour before you go to Mass. And it's sort of a mikvah. It's a yeah. it's a sort of way of saying, sanctify yourself before you go to Mass and receive the Eucharist. And so, you know, I do think there's a lot of merit in all of that because, uh, you know, what do we do in Protestant church to really sanctify ourselves for a particular occasion. And what you said earlier really prompted this because I was thinking, yeah, um, it is kind of personal in a lot of ways. If, if sanctification is a sort of spiritual cleansing, then you're dirty in places I'm not, so to speak. In, in other words, if, if, if I'm covered in dust, you know, from being on the road, and you're yeah. covered in dust for being on the road, but you dress a certain way, I dress a certain way. You got dirt in places I don't, and I got dirt in places you don't. And so when we take our spiritual bath, you got to cleanse where you're dirty, and I got to cleanse where I'm dirty. Now, you're probably washing everything, but some places require more attention than others, let's say. Um, if I've been working on the car, I got grease in places that it, where I'm going to have to rub a little harder to get it off. And, and if you yeah. were working in the garden, you've got dirt, which can be brushed off. And you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So it's a strange analogy, but it, it, it gives me a way of interpreting the idea that, that what I have to do to attain sanctification isn't necessarily the same thing you would do for sanctification. So what do you think about all that? I, I've been talking a lot. Well, I guess I'm thinking like everybody's capable of achieving holiness, which I think goes with sanctification and purity and all that stuff. But, but I also think that holiness is one of those things that is a, is a spiritual gift too. So like some people are just like, like you may be, like you said with the dirt thing, like you may be at a different level than me in terms of holiness so I may have to do different things. Like maybe I do need to do more. Like maybe I need more ritual to help me with that. And maybe some other people, it's very natural for them already. Yeah. Well, you remember we were talking a couple of weeks ago, and you've, you and I have talked about this a few times, but we have a, re- a recording of us talking about um, that, that where I, environments that inspire me to worship yeah, You know, it's kind of interesting because I find it very difficult to worship in the churches that I serve as a pastor. Um, and, and, and people listening to this go, oh, poor Pastor Dan. And, and it, it isn't their fault. It really isn't. It isn't. It isn't because I'm so busy leading church. It's really not that at all. Um, it's just what kind of environment inspires me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um a week ago, I had my staff from the church at at uh, the monastery uh, where my sister, your Aunt Missy, is a nun. And, sister Missy. Huh? I said Sister Missy. Yep, Sister Missy. 
And when we were there, we took a, a few minutes after lunch, and, and Missy took him into the uh, chapel and, and or into the church, really. And, and I, I realized right then that I felt more worshipful in that setting yeah, uh, I agree. Than I do in the typical Methodist church, at least the ones I've served. Now, some Methodist churches can feel a lot like that, too. And again, that's a matter of taste, I guess, or comfort. It isn't really a criticism yeah. or any. It's not It's not about that at all. It's just the recognition of what what tweaks me and what, you know, what kind of gets my spiritual juices flowing. Um. I have a certain monastic side to me, I guess. I, I really don't like being anti-social or anything, but sometimes uh, when when I really want my spiritual juices flowing, I want to be in an environment where all of my energy is devoted to the presence of God and not to the people around me. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think for me that I'm, I'm very much the same way because I just... I remember that when we were in Israel, the time I got to go with you, the the Church of the Nativity really, um, and obviously, it, like, it's supposed to be where Jesus was born, so it's it's kind of a special place anyway. But but being in like up in the actual church and not even down below where they have all the glitz and glam around the spot that he may have been born, but the actual church was very holy for me and it and it it kind of is one of those like what you're talking about where uh, i don't know like all the sensors and the low lights and like the way they yeah. kind of force they force you to be like i i can't i will never get out of my head the fact that the door into the church of the nativity is like three feet tall and you have to bend down to go in the church like you have to kneel basically to enter that space and i so I think that for certain people, apparently both of us, that that journey of holiness and sanctification, sometimes you need those rituals and you need you need the kind of I guess like high church stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but not. I mean, I don't guess it's for everybody. But yeah, I mean, I really. So maybe maybe the the whole uh, spiritual. The, the, the spiritual side of sanctification, which I guess that's what the whole thing is, but I want to come back to a life pleasing to God. So, yeah. so from a spiritual sense, uh, sometimes we have to, in order to be sanctified, we have to do things that sort of get us spiritually fit. Mm-hmm. But this is where I would say that we go back to the James passage that says faith without works is dead. You know, if you get yourself all spiritually fit, but then, you know, fit for what? Um, and so the question I guess I would ask is, is, okay, is it possible then that sanctification isn't entirely about us? And maybe that's one of the problems with the concept is, is that, that when we think of sanctification, it feels like something highly personal that we do for God. And in effect, that's selfish. It doesn't, it, I don't mean literally, you know, like you're doing it for selfish reason. You want to live a life pleasing to God, but it's sort of a solo thing. Um, what if uh, living a life that's pleasing to God or personal sanctification is also about the people you affect? I would, I like that. 
Yeah, I mean, what if what if we better than it being about me? Yeah, I mean, what if we are sanctified so that we can sort of radiate light? Yeah, you know, Jesus said you don't put a a bushel basket over your light. You you know, um, he so he he speaks a lot about how that what we're experiencing with him and from him and through him is meant to radiate. It, it's supposed to, and you know, the Bible talks so much about light and darkness and, and uh, there's a whole line of study there that really is quite literal that, that, you know, darkness is the absence of light. Darkness represents sin and evil. It represents, and darkness in the, in this sense is an absence of light. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with the color of skin or the flesh or colors of uh, any, you know, I got, I'm looking at a black box on my desk. It doesn't mean it's darkness. In, but we see, we see black because of absence. Yeah. It, it's the That's absence of light color. that makes darkness happen. It's, it's, you know, darkness is the result. It's like the default light, light casts away darkness. So the Bible's just full of those kinds of images and statements. You're and, just really making me want to sing God's spell. <laughs> So yeah, you are the light of the world. That's there you go, and <laughs> so each uh, each sanctified person's like a light, you know, mm-hmm. like like a star in the sky, like a candle in a dark room. You know, each one of us is a light. Um, you know, we we do the candle lighting on Christmas Eve, and we turn down all the church lights, and after everybody there has got their candle lit, it gets quite bright. Yeah, you know, and it's it's a whole lot of little small lights that amount to one big glow, and maybe that's really what sanctification is. So, so uh, being a sanctified person is not only about you impressing God, but becoming an instrument with which God impresses the world. Well, there there's a popular Christian song that there's a line in it that I use as like my personal mission statement for my work. And it says, God put a million doors in the world for his love to walk through. And one of those doors is you. That's cool. I, it's like, that's my favorite line from any song I've ever heard. And I use it as my mission statement. And if what you're saying is true, then I feel like that goes perfectly with sanctification because it's about you being that door, that opening for other people to witness and experience God's love, mercy, salvation. So yeah, I re- I'm, I jive with the idea that sanctification is about other people. I love that. And then that kind of goes back to that thing I was telling you before we started about how I just I have to tie psychology into everything because that's how my brain works. And I said that sanctification kind of reminds me of self-actualization which is the tip top of the pyramid and Maslow's hierarchy of needs and I think that kind of like that does kind of work the more I think about it because if you're starting at the bottom of the pyramid and Maslow says that you aren't ever going to get to that to self-actualization if you haven't even met your need you know the basic needs you have and I think that with as a Christian you're starting at the bottom as you know a new follower a new believer and you keep moving up. And I, I, I really, I'm, I really am digging the idea that it, like, if you get to the top of the pyramid, it's not about you anymore. You've done your building. Yeah. 
And once you're at the top, now it's about building for other people. But I think that where it's different than what Maslow is talking about, Maslow says that very few people reach self-actualization because they're too busy dealing with all the other stuff. And I think the thing that's uniquely Christian and uniquely just like Jesus is awesome is that it's not, sanctification is not something that very few people can achieve. Yeah. And I also think maybe it's less of a pyramid because you can be on your own journey and be helping build others toward their journey at the same time. So maybe you are sanctification is happening for you and you're living a life pleasing to God at the same time that maybe not everything you're doing is pleasing to God and you're still working on your journey. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm going, I'm word vomiting. So stop me. But <laughs> You're doing fine. <laughs> well, so where my is going with all this and I'm really enjoying it. Like I'm digging it. And so basically what I'm hearing is it reminds me of Wesley's doctrine of sanctification. I was having a conversation with somebody about this, uh, actually, I think today, and and it's uh, uh, I was talking with a guy from a local Christian radio station today, and um, Paul, my my director of operations was also there and and we were talking about Wesley's concept of sanctification was that he believed that some people could actually achieve sanctification in their lifetime he he believed that what that amounted to was perfect love in other words he didn't he didn't suggest or suppose that people could be perfect christians like like they would somehow be just like jesus but what he said was that at some point, the love of self would be so completely purged that all that would be left is love of God. And that goes along with one of my fundamental premises about the Bible, which is that it's a book that tells us that whenever we focus most of our energy on God, we're doing it right. And when we focus most of our energy on ourselves, we're doing it wrong. Yeah. And one of the results of focusing all of your energy on God is that you will begin to radiate God's love, you know, because God is love and that God's love is what's motivating everything God does. So the more in tune you are with God, the more likely you are to do things the way God would do them. Um, so you go from what would Jesus do to I don't know why I'm doing this if it isn't because it's God's will. It, it's sort of like that. And so now Wesley's doctrine, for what it's worth, basically was that if you didn't achieve perfect love in life, you would complete the journey at death. You know, that the moment you were in God's presence, you would be the moment you were fully in God's presence after death, you would also be fully and uh, enveloped with God's love, and therefore you would reach perfect love. So, so that his, good. that's a lot less bleak than Maslow's because Maslow does. You know, if you didn't get to self actualization in life, you're you're done. Yeah. So yeah, well that and I, that would be the difference between psychology and religion, right? I mean, <laughs> right. you know, um, I mean, psychology's a lot of things could be called religions, but but at least a religion of life after death supposes that what's not complete here will be complete in in the next life in in heaven 
but mm-hmm. but yeah so so basically his his idea of sanctification wesley that is was was just a uh, a realization that what we're trying to do is to be more totally devoted to god and more in love with god every day and therefore more like god and and so all of a sudden living a life pleasing to god isn't really a an effort and maybe that if it, it – I, I would even go so far as to say that what Wesley seems to be describing is effortless sanctification, that you would get to a point where you're not working at it. Um, you know, and, and I was – I was uh, I, this is dangerous, but I'm going to risk it. I've been listening uh, to the audio book of one of my favorite books ever, Centennial. And, you know, one of the characters comes from a Mennonite family – um, but his family, I think, would put a lot of would make a lot of Mennonites ashamed because his particular family is like the most sanctimonious bunch of jerks that ever walked the earth. I mean, his his family he broke away from them because they were such jerks, and 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 so they they had a kind of piety that was out of this. It was outrageous piety, and the idea in their minds was that they were sanctified because uh, because they consciously put themselves above the sinners in their minds and but it was all social it, it was all it was all based on a set of rules and and basically as long as you were approved of and thought highly of by the people in your little circle then you were fine and that was you know it's a whole other thing to say i'm going to really risk something radical here i'm not going to be satisfied that i've become the kind of person i should be until it starts feeling like i've had god's approval that i'm you know, uh, it doesn't matter whether you think I'm a good person or not. The question is, does God think I'm a good person? You know, now, that's a little dangerous to say because chances are you know goodness when you see it. Yeah. You know, um, and again, that would explain why this living a life pleasing to God has to affect others in order that it's faith that produces something, you know, that yeah. that. And I've seen it. There are people who don't claim to be religious, who wouldn't have anything to do with church, who who claim that they're atheists, and yet they'll acknowledge a good person when they see one. They'll mm-hmm. they'll acknowledge that that uh, they don't believe in what informs your actions, but they really recognize the goodness of your actions. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good enough reason to live live a life pleasing to God. Um, because it gives them a conundrum, you know, not, not that the game is to see how we can mess with the atheist head, you know, not, not that that's what's going on necessarily, but, but I'm laughing because I just told my fourth graders this week in lessons that the best way to really, really get under a bully's skin is to be obnoxiously nice to them. Yeah. Like, because they're going to scratch their head and be like, why are they being so good? Like, and, and my kids love it. They're like, yeah, that's, that's really funny. But it's true. I, I like, like you said, it, it's at least going to have them scratching their heads and going, what, like, why are these people the way they are? And maybe it's going to, it might not work on everybody, but maybe it's going to make somebody stop and question like, okay, this person is 
is there's something different about this person and maybe they're going to dig and try to figure out what that is. Yeah. Well, I just looked at the clock and, and uh, if I don't want this podcast to go uh, ridiculously long, I mean, there's certain people that probably count on it to be just long enough for them to get to work or whatever. So <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to wrap this up. But uh, do you have any other thoughts on the subject of sanctification that you would like to share? I don't think so. All right. Well, thank you again. Uh, you have you have made my ratings go up. Uh, <laughs> having Bethany on my podcast has made it much more appealing to my audience, um, <laughs> and I'm grateful for that. I've wanted to do this for a long time, so thanks for being a part of this each week, and and uh, I'm looking forward to the next one, and I'm looking forward to the day we do these in person too. So, <laughs> so. So for the sake of our podcast, I'm going to say goodbye and thank you and I love you. I love you too. Now this is the segment where we talk about uh, the church speak, I like to call it. You know, in church language, we have certain things that we say. And to the newcomer, these phrases and things can be off-putting or words can be off-putting because, well, they, they're just words that aren't commonly heard in, in English language. You know, I don't know how many times in your casual conversation at the coffee shop the word sanctification comes up, for example. But if you were trying to describe sanctification to somebody, you might use words or phrases like these. Perfect love, holiness or personal holiness. Uh, set apart for a particular kind of lifestyle and for a particular kind of connection with God. Um, you might refer to it as, uh, as a personal holiness that is particularly visible in love that is expressed through imitation of Christ. Uh, sanctification might be described as purity of heart and life, and uh, it might be considered a a kind of Christian perfection in that we're perfect in the characteristics of God that dwell in us. So it doesn't really mean we're perfect. It just means that that we are looking for that perfect love in our own hearts. I like the word maturity. And it isn't the best way to describe sanctification, at least if you're trying to describe the doctrine uh, of, say, John Wesley. But if I wanted to describe sanctification in simple terms, I'd probably just say, well, when you're born again, you are sort of a baby Christian. And being born again and accepting the Holy Spirit and having a new life in Christ, the presumption is, is that you would grow. Just as a baby grows, we, we would be very concerned about a baby that didn't grow if we saw someone bring their newborn to church Sunday and that newborn still looked like a newborn a year later, we'd be deeply concerned, right? And it, it sounds absurd even. And yet, many, many people will come into a newborn relationship with Christ and years later still act like infants or toddlers in Christ. And so, sanctification is a commitment to a constant process of spiritual maturity.
now faith asks questions. And to be specific, the kinds of questions that we're referring to are those that you might ask your pastor or the elders and leaders of your church or denominational leaders. Ask questions like this. What does the church teach in response to God's call to be holy because God is holy? What does the doctrine of sanctification say about this community of faith and how it relates to the world? And how would the Christian teaching that we hold to in this church be diminished if we didn't have a doctrine of holiness and sanctification? Because we, the church, believe God has called us to a life of holiness, I will seek daily to grow in the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. Let that be your prayer each day as you consider this idea, this doctrine of sanctification. Because we, the church, believe God has called us to a life of holiness, I will seek daily to grow into the fullness of the stature of of Jesus Christ. Well, that wraps it up for this week's lesson, number 25, Sanctification, Living a Life Pleasing to God. Next week is lesson 26, Ending with a Beginning, or Christian Hope. Christian Hope, Ending with a Beginning, lesson 26. And uh, your reading assignments for Scripture will be in the description box at the bottom of this uh, podcast uh, block. And uh, so look for those and look them up on your devices and listen to them on your audio Bible or whatever you need to do. And uh, for that, I am grateful because your participation in this process is so vital if you really wanted to glean all the great value from it that you you have access to. And uh, I, I'm just really urging you to take that part seriously because, you know, a Sunday morning Christian is better than not being a Christian at all, but being a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day Christian is the goal here, and that's really the essence of sanctification, isn't it? And so, here are some tools that you can use, and the Scripture being king or most significant among them all. Uh, we'll close today with uh, a prayer by Amy Carmichael. And here is our closing prayer by Amy Carmichael. Lord, more and more I pray thee, or by wind or fire, make my inmost heart's desire and purge the clinging chaff from off the floor. I wish thy way, but when in me myself would rise and long for something otherwise, then holy one, Take sword and spear and slay. O stay nearby, most patient love, till by thy grace, in this poor silver, thy bright face shows forth in clearness and serenity. What will it be when, like the lily or the rose that in my flowery garden blows, I shall be flawless, perfect, Lord, to thee? 
I want to thank you for your continuing support for this uh, ministry of Shiloh United Methodist Church. Uh, what is your support? Well, you listen. And uh, can I be frank with you? If it wasn't for the analytics that are part of my podcasting software, I wouldn't know you were out there. And you know why? Because I don't hear from you. So please, send me a note. Send me a word of encouragement if this is a blessing to you. I would love to hear from you. You can uh, find me by way of the podcast links, or you can go to shilohum.org, shilohum.org, and uh, you can visit us at the website, and you'll find a picture of me, and it will link you to contacting me. And uh, I'd love to hear from you, just, just to hear that this is a blessing to you. And uh, if you're not part of a local church and you live in southwestern Indiana, Shiloh, of course, would be glad to welcome you. But my, my prayer for you is that in your journey of sanctification, you wouldn't be tempted to go it alone, that this wouldn't be the only thing you do. So please be a part of a local church. Keep trying until you find the place that God says, this is your home. And uh, until next time, God bless you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.